Well, good morning to you all. My name is Otis Hall. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to you who are here in the auditorium and you who are at home. Uh, this weekend, we celebrate two holidays. We, we get to celebrate Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to you who are in the room, you who are at home. That extends outside of the realm of biological fathers. If you are discipling someone or walking with some and you are a mentor to them, happy Father's Day to you as well. The second holiday is Juneteenth. Um, and it's the holiday where we celebrate the last space where institutionalized slavery was ended in Texas. And it was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was announced. These holidays represent family and freedom for us. But this is the point in our service where we would normally show you a Father's Day video and it would do things that would have mixed responses in the crowd. It would, it would make some of us feel inadequate as fathers as we can't live up to the things that show in those videos. It would make some of us excited because those are the ways we remember our dads. It, it would make others miss their fathers who are gone or are not here or they never had. Or we would continue to talk about Juneteenth. But I'd, I'd like to do something a little bit different. And I like to do that because we find ourselves in this series called Masterpiece. And in this series, we're exploring the meaning of God's workmanship, us, and being his masterpieces that he created. And, and instead of doing those normal things that we would do, I'd like to tell you about two extraordinary women who are responsible for making these holidays, the national holidays that we celebrate. They are examples of our theme verse for this series. They're examples of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And they, their stories will, will remind you of our series thesis, which is this. We are good works of art created to do the, good, the art of good works. They are amazing examples of women who we should honor for their commitment to the principles of family and of freedom. Let me introduce you to Sonora Smart Dodd. This is an amazing woman. She is known to be the person who drove us towards having Father's Day be a national thing. Sonora was amazing in her own right. Not only was she an advocate for Father's Day, but she was also a poet, a children's book author. She ran a funeral home. She did amazing things. Every civic organization in the town of Spokane, Washington started under her leadership. But her story starts before that, when her family lived in Arkansas. You see, William Jackson Smart, Sonora's father, was a twice-married, twice widowed Civil War veteran of both the Confederate and the Union armies. You should have asked me about that story later. Um, the story goes, when, uh, when Sonora was 16, her mother Ellen died. Uh, William was the father of 14 children. He really believed in go forth and multiply. But there were six left at home when his, her mother Ellen died, her and her five brothers. And he became the single father in that home. And she was sitting in church one Sunday morning in 1909. And there was the Mother's Day celebration going on in her church. And she sat there and she looked at her father, who, who had for years at this point represented the totality of parenting in that moment. He was both father and mother. She is 
she is remembered as saying over and over again, I remember everything about my father. He was both father and mother to me and my brothers, and he did it brilliantly. In that moment, she wanted to know why there wasn't a holiday honoring the fathers in the world. And so she spent the better part of the next 60 years of her life advocating for Father's Day to move from a celebration that happened inside her local churches to be a national event. She was determined to have this done for 60 years. She was 96, six years before she died, before President Nixon signed the official act to make Father's Day, a national holiday. She had a mission, and it was a mission not about her own personal interests. I have good reflexes. Um, but about growing something for her community. This is Opal Lee. Opal Lee is a retired teacher and activist. She is widely considered the grandmother of Juneteenth. Opal Lee was born on the best day of the year, well, October 7th. If you don't know why that's the best day, it's my birthday. <laughs> she was born just a few years before me, 50, in 1926 in Marshall, Texas, to her father, Otis Flake, and Maddie Brodus. When Lee was a child, her, her childhood home burned down in Marshall, Texas, and the, the father, her father left to go and earn money so that they could rebuild. He, he moved away and sent money home as he did. And so her mother took over the role of both parents. And she remembers her mother being both father and mother to her and her siblings in those moments. And one of the decisions that her mother made was to move the family to Fort Worth, Texas, when she was 10. And, and shortly after they lived there, their father, her father Otis, came home and joined them. And it was a good thing, too, because in that time period, her mother fell on a bus on her way to work. And she hurt herself to the point where she could no longer do the things that she was doing, and he had to take over. And so the city awarded them a settlement to which they used to purchase their home in Fort Worth, Texas. They purchased their home in, in June of 1939. And then the Monday of June 19th, Juneteenth Day, they remember 500 members of the side of the tracks that they live on marching to their house and burning it to the ground. You see, they were the first black family to live in that neighborhood. It was the other side of the track. Can you imagine what that's like to have the people in your own community show up and burn your house to the ground? Can you imagine what that puts in your head about people who are not like you, who are different than you? But what she remembers is her father calling the family together and her father telling her this. It's up to you to change someone's minds because minds can be changed. If people have been taught to hate, they can be taught to love. And it's up to you to do it. That message from her father drove her to do the work she has done over her 90 years of life at this point to preserve the history of Juneteenth, to preserve the history of her people, to change the hearts of all of the students every year after year of student coming to the room to teach them about the importance of freedom, the importance of loving each other because they are to be loved. But that wasn't enough for her. 
she understood that the freedom that was given in Juneteenth wasn't just freedom for the slaves. It was freedom for all of us to be family together. And she wanted us to celebrate that on a national scale. And so Opal, at the ripe young age of 89, decided that she would walk from Fort Worth, Texas to Washington, D.C., she had garnered 1.6 million signatures on a petition to make Juneteenth a national holiday. And so every morning, starting in September of 2016, she would walk two and a half miles. And every evening, she would walk two and a half miles to, to remember the two and a half years it took for freedom to come. And she, she walked from September 2016 to January 2017 before she arrived in Washington, D.C., to submit this petition for this day that represents freedom from our country and for its people so that it would be recognized across the country. She would have to wait some four more years before it was realized. Their mission was family. Their mission was not about something that was just important to them. It was, it was about growing the collection of people who interacted with them. And both of these women came from things that we would call unconventional homes. They, they would have unconventional structures throughout. And, and oftentimes we think that that causes problems, but those families had profound effects on their lives because there were other people who stepped into to fill the roles that needed to be filled. After all, we all understand this. We all understand that healthy, family needs, healthy families need parents. And if we talk about people in the church that we mentor and we care for and we disciple, healthy families on mission need spiritual parents. But what we must also remember is that they don't need to be married couples or even blood relatives to be effective in that space. After all, that's how God designed us. That's what it means to be spiritual parents and part of the family of God. We have to remember that kingdom families look different. Think about Jesus functioning as the spiritual parent for all of the people who he was around, his disciples. He was a single man, not married, without a wife, but he was their father, their surrogate father, and taught them all of the ways that the father wanted them to be. Jesus redefined what it meant to be family. Mark tells us this. He tells us this story in, in Mark chapter 3 about Jesus being in somebody's house, and there's a large crowd of people. They were, they were so interested in what he was doing. He and the disciples didn't even have time to stop to eat that day. And Jesus' mother and brothers heard about this, and they marched over to the house because they were worried about him. And they demanded to see him. And, and so a messenger went in the house and told Jesus that his mother and his brothers were outside, and they wanted to see him. And Jesus' response in that moment redefined what family is and what family is for and how it works. He redefined family for all of us, by saying this, who are my mothers and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God will, God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Can you imagine what happened in that room? 
Can you imagine how it felt for a group of people where lineage was of pinnacle importance? Who your father was, who he was connected to. All of those things were most important. But Jesus redefines it all in that moment. I have a healthy respect for my mother. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a son in this moment. My mother is outside demanding to see me and I tell her, no, I'm already with my family. Can you imagine what this was like for the disciples? They went from people who were following him as a teacher to becoming an intimate part of this family. But isn't that what Jesus is doing with all of us? Isn't that his goal? Isn't isn't the goal of Jesus to do this? Isn't Isn't it true that Jesus is creating a family whose mission is to invite more people into the family? In our lives, Jesus functioned as a surrogate parent. He reveals to us what the Father is like, and he called even his disciples little children because he wanted to be the example that they should grow into to follow. Because for Jesus, making fully devoted followers is not about growing the numbers in the kingdom. It's about developing family in the kingdom. And he taught his disciples all of the ways to do this. And you see that in the way that they interact with the people after Jesus left. Think about Paul and his letters to the Corinthians or the other churches. But in in 1 Corinthians, Paul, Paul says this. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul was mimicking Jesus in this moment. We have to understand his relationship to these people in this church. He started these churches. He saw them as his children who were to imitate his example as he imitated Jesus. And can you see how deeply he took it? When he refers to Timothy, he, he, he copies the word that God said about Jesus at his baptism. I, this is my son who I love. And even though I'm not there, he will teach you the ways that you should go. The ways that I taught you. As I imitate Jesus, you imitate me. And as I was studying this, I came across some words from Warren Wiersbe. He's a pastor and biblical scholar. The way that he talks about this helps me and I hope help you understand what is happening in this moment with Paul. Warren says, Paul gave the same admonition to the Philippians and the Ephesians and the other churches that he wrote. But we must not think that he was exalting himself. Little children learn first by example and then by explanation. When Paul pastored the church in Corinth, he set the example before them in love, devotion to Christ, sacrifice, and service. Paul was a good example because he was following the greatest example of all, Jesus Christ. That's what God is calling us to do. And that's what's true for Sonora and Opal. They imitated who they saw and experienced. Family helped shape who they were. And what was important to them? Their fathers had profound effects on their lives. 
But it wasn't just their fathers who helped develop them into the strong and powerful women that they were. They had helpers. They had mothers and siblings. They had the community around them who shaped them and drove them to change the community in a way that has been and will be felt for generations to come. They are examples of God's masterpiece. But they are an example of how God's masterpiece is woven together from generation to generation. And that's what we should be talking about today when we talk about fathering, when we follow Jesus. It's not about biology. It is about relationship. It's about being on God's mission. The way that we define that mission here at Autumn Ridge is that we say we want to be part of leading people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we do that with the smallest child to the newest person, to anyone that God puts in front of our lives in the community. Because it is the mission of the family of God. It's the mission for all of us. Dads and moms and husbands and wives and singles and young and those not as young. But there's a problem because so often we reduce that mission to the task that we should do rather than living it out as the way that we are. For a long time, we've reduced discipleship to the function of a class, a program, or a curriculum. And there's nothing wrong with those things. They equip us to do the work, but they are not the work. A family on mission is the way that we live our life every day. But far too often we sacrifice the understanding of being God's handiwork for the good work that he's prepared for us in advance for something else. For this. Autonomy. Isn't there something about us that want to be self-governing? When we think about raising our children and launching new people and Jesus out into the world, isn't there something ingrained in us about making them this? I think about my daughter who's only seven. Maddie's seven years old. And now because she has a gallon-sized bag with some money in it and can use the microwave, she feels like she's autonomous and doesn't need her parents anymore. (laughs) We didn't teach her that. She came that way. And at every milestone, in every step, she gets more and more and more independent, thinking that she needs us less and less. And isn't there something about that as parents that turns our stomach? Because the goal is not autonomy. It's interdependence. I don't want to launch her into the world and make her feel like she has to go about this life all on her own. I don't want anyone that I disciple to feel like I've launched them into the world with the knowledge of Jesus Christ and it's their responsibility alone to do all of the work. But isn't that the definition of success? Isn't the definition of success success to be an individual who can do what they want and pay for what they want. They can go where they want. They can do what they want as long as others agree with what they want. That defines us, and that pursuit necessitates us to focus on ourselves, to focus on the individual achievements that we can have. But in that moment, what it also does is relegates the handiwork, the work that God has called us to, to something that is a task that we can do when we have time for it. If you want examples of this, you don't have to look any further than the Old Testament. 
There are countless examples in the Old Testament of people who chose their autonomy over the work that God would have them do. Think about Cain killing Abel. It was about elevating himself in the eyes of God. Jacob and Esau started their war for autonomy and independence even in the womb, much less the struggle for the birthright. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery so that they could elevate themselves in the eyes of their father. What about David's choice with Bathsheba? And then subsequently his relationship and inability to discipline his children after that choice had been made. Each one of them feels like their identity was lost in something about being autonomous. If we had them fill out this chart about who I am and what I do and what is needed, their answers would be confused. They would answer things like this. Who I am for them would be defined by where I came from, what I do, and how others see me. They would think about the things about what they should do by things like what gathers me the most recognition, what is the most self-promoting thing that I can do, and what is needed is for me to do everything in my power to do that, to achieve for me. That's not what God is asking us to do. That's not how God is asking us to live. When we do this, when we do this and we focus more on autonomy than the mission, it leads us to this separation that's really dangerous. Because it allows us to think that everything that we read in Scripture and everything that we do in Scripture is about an individual purpose. And we begin to read it through the lens of individualism. We even begin to picture God as an individual on mission. And therein lies the problem. It is a tenet of our faith that God is not alone. He was always with someone. In the beginning, there was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. In the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the deep. God was never alone in his mission. And since he designed you and me in his image, God didn't design us for autonomy. He designed us for community. He designed us for family. So how do we get there? How do we get to this place where we're living out what Paul repeatedly told the churches that he started? Well, how do we live out what, God, what Paul told him in Ephesians chapter 4? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Does this sound like something that you can do alone? The answer to that is no. The question that we should be asking ourselves in this culture that we live in that drives us to think about ourselves as individual and autonomous, the question that we should be asking is, how do we get our chart to read this way instead of focusing on ourselves? How do we teach our children and those who we disciple and those who we walk with that who I am is based on being a child of God, that we are his masterpiece, that we are his family? How do we move people to think about <coughs> excuse me, what I should do as walking with God and glorifying him and serving others? And what is always needed is for us to be patient with people who are like us and who are not like us, people who are in church and who are not, to seek unity with those same groups of people and peace in all of the ways and to love them the way God loves them. 
How do we move culture to that point? Doesn't it feel like you have to make a choice? Doesn't it feel like we have to choose? We have to choose as those who follow Jesus to be individuals who decide that we're going to go our own way or to accept the role that God has created us as a masterpiece to be, and that is a family. It is, it is the amazing thing about what God has done that each one of us is a beautiful masterpiece that works together in unity as a family. But the way that the family gets at the mission is, is very complex. It's why there are groups of people like me who are in charge of church and community engagement who think about the methodologies around how we do this. And so we're going to talk a little bit about some methodologies. And each one of those methodologies has pluses and minuses. Each one of them helps us get at the work that God is doing, but they do it in a way that may be healthy and may not be healthy. And there, there are three of them. There are three ways for us to do this. We can choose family or mission. We can choose family and mission. Or we can choose family on mission. And so let's talk a little about, about each one. I'll, I'll start with family or mission. We all know people who do this, right? You can think about people who created revival and change and transformation in the life of the church. Some of them, many of them, going out into the mission field and leaving their families behind. You can think about the people who've preached the best sermons and wrote the best books, the ones that have changed and shaped the way that you want to interact with God and the mission that he's called you on. And in those moments when you read those books and you think about those sermons and you think about them going out on a mission, we feel this heroic feeling towards them. Because God worked through them. But if you looked on the other side of it, their families were disasters. I can think of countless families that I know where the pastors do amazing things and the children won't attend church anymore because of what it did to destroy their family because there was a choice made. You see, family or mission stunts us because we have to sacrifice one thing or the other while both things are necessary if we're going to live out the call of God. It can't be one or the other. It is not the way that we were designed. And so, sure, what's the answer? The answer is simple, right? The next step is family and mission. Surely that's the example. That's where most of us live. We'll just do them both. I can hear the planners in the room thinking, yeah, it's all about the schedule. I can balance, notice I can, I can balance the time that I need with my family, all of the games and all of the things that they need to go to. The time that I'm going to spend with my friends, with the mission opportunities that the church is giving us and the opportunity to share the gospel with people, I can hold them both in tension. Until you take your focus off of one or the other and what happens? One of them gets dropped. Because you're not managing either one. You're not deeply involved in either one. You are focusing on the boundary that you created. And the boundary is ruling your life. Family and mission exhausts us because we need to manage the boundaries between family and mission. And, and when you do that, our family life lacks purpose while our mission seems unnatural. Do you understand how that works? 
If there's always a timetable, if there's always a limit to the time that you can spend investing in the life of your children or your family or your friends, because at a moment's notice you have to turn it off and go and do something else. How do you you help people be fully devoted followers of Jesus if all you're doing is managing your boundaries? That's exhausting. And so what's the solution? The solution is what Jesus did. When he walked with his disciples, when he was with people, they were intimately involved in the daily life that he had. Did he have boundaries? Yes. Were there times when Jesus went away and prayed? And were there times when Jesus went away and rested? Yes, but in those moments that people needed him, he was always there to utter exhaustion. When he was with his disciples and he went away and prayed, he took some of them with him so that they could learn. It was about family development for him. And so the answer is family on mission because it empowers us. Because we learn to live an interdependent life, moving forward on mission as a team, as a covenant family with a kingdom mission in mind. But to do that, But to do that, we have to open our homes. We have to be the married couple that see the singles in our church and in our community. Invite them into our lives. When we go for a walk, we ask them to go for a walk. It means that when we have children, we have to turn them over to the young men and the young women in children's ministry or teen ministry to to pour into them the way that we would want them to be. For the singles, it means bringing your friends to community events and going to senior events so that we are doing life together in the reality of what's going on all around us. That empowers you. But you have to surrender your agenda and join the family to do that. In reality, that was God's intention. Jesus intended to fill his father's house with all the children that he could get. And that is you and that is me. It was his goal to grow this family. And what's so excited about that is when you become part of the family, you become part of the family business. You become not just a participant, but you become a builder. You're the one who's so excited that you want others to join you in it. And you can't help but talk about it. I think about the disciples in this place. I think about specifically Peter. I think about his journey, which was this. Peter started out as an observer watching Jesus. And he moved to a friend who served Jesus, to a follower who submitted to Jesus, to a family member who surrendered to Jesus. That's the path that we want our family to go. Whether it's the smallest child to the oldest adult that we're spending time with. We want this to be the path for them to end up in a place where they are the family of God because he built a house for us, a house that reflects the family that was on the mission that he was on when he started. And you know what happens when you join this family and you do life with others? You were trained to do what he trained his disciples to do. You were trained to do this. You were trained to do the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, (coughs) baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This was the last command that he gave his disciples. But before he left, did he tell them how to do this? 
Did he give them the instruction manual on day-to-day operations on how this should be done? The answer to that is no, because he had done it by doing what we're asking you to do, to be family. He had lived out this with them. They knew how to do it, and so do we. We just have to accept to be the family on mission. There was a quote that I heard one time in a learning session about how we do what we're talking about today, and it stuck with me. It is incredibly powerful as we think about being a family on mission. It's this. It all started with a family on mission, and it's advanced through a family on mission. That is such a powerful thought, that in the beginning, the family started the mission, and it was for you and for me. And the way that this mission will be advanced is through you and through me as the family. Because this idea of family has been part part of who God is since the beginning. Family on mission is what God has always been and what he's always been about. He is our father and you are his masterpieces. And there is good work for us to do. All we have to do is put aside what we want and join him in that work. Won't you join us in that work today?